Last month, Jonathan Demme's iconic Talking Heads concert film from 1984 was released. It's coming to cinemas uh, next Thursday. It's had a 4K restoration, and the song has been doing the rounds on TikTok, and it's attracting a totally new audience, I am led to believe. People are saying, who is this new band? Talking Heads, they should be promoted more. Um, <laughs> the, the wide pants, the dance moves, it's all very now right now. Can you recall, can you, can you, I can recall seeing Stop Making Sense when it first came out, and Linda Hellenan, it was just groundbreaking. People talk about the Taylor Swift movie, uh, like it's the, it's been the first ever music film, but gosh, Stop Making Sense, that was pretty profound when it came out. La la la. Never heard of Talking Heads? <laughs> no, yeah. I've heard of them, of course, but I haven't seen that. What about you, Simon? I wasn't around for the first time. Oh my it came goodness out, gracious! <laughs> talking, talk, talk. <laughs> who are you people? Gosh, <laughs> honestly. And speaking of who are you people, um, we are being widely slammed uh, about our comments regarding heritage. Shame on you for mocking the local architectural heritage for its relatively recent age. Linda, uh, buildings like town halls and small towns, as well as our cities, are monuments to the architectural, artistic and financial devotion to our forebears who paid for them and gave them to us to give us a chance of living more enriched lives. They survive as a challenge to us to leave behind something as good or better for those who come after us kindly. I hate to be rude, but that attitude will die with those buildings, you know, because these days people just don't care the same way they used to. Like, I don't go to the town hall and think, oh, yay, our forebears, didn't they do a great job of providing us with these riches? I think, God, there's an old building that's going to fall down and cost everyone half a billion dollars. Sorry, I'm being a bit of a devil's advocate for the the modern generation, but... Well, yeah, we're going to come back to this tomorrow, I I think. problem isn't like do we want to we can't um, afford keep the building. To it's more like if it says it's going to cost 40 and then it gets up to 500 um may, may, maybe there's a moment where you, you but you also you know that if it says it's going to cost 500 now it ain't going to cost 500 it's going to cost a billion right you're on the panel uh nz national nice uh to have you company now um if you have broken up as a couple in later life, this might interest you. Couples over 50 years old who split up are more than twice as likely to feel financially uncomfortable than prior to separation. New research from the Retirement Commission. People who felt financially vulnerable following a breakup jumped to 64% up from 21% as a division of assets later in life can have a financial impact on retirement. But there were a couple of aspects that people did not consider, one being KiwiSaver. Some respondents assumed the KiwiSaver contributions were not part of the relationship property asset pool. Well, guess what? They are. With us is barrister and family lawyer Jeremy Sutton. Welcome, Jeremy. Thank you very much for having me on the panel. It's a pleasure, Jeremy. First up, I guess this research highlights the financial difficulties that many Kiwis face at retirement following a life shock like separation in later life, um, because you can stand to lose a lot, can't you? Yeah, well, many Kiwis don't retire anymore at, at 65. They, they may work into their 70s, and they just don't want to think about it about retiring now. And there is a gender aspect of this, isn't there, Jeremy? Women will be financially worse off post-separation, according to that research, although that is nothing new. I mean, is this something that you yourself see? 
Oh, absolutely. So there are tools to help the person who has foregone their career with the children, which is normally the woman, and that's an adjustment called economic disparity. But that's that's not an easy um, thing to get across or to argue. And then there are a huge number of family trusts in this country which are not considered relationship property. So it's a very mm. um, you know, cumbersome and complex process. Now, I want to raise something that uh, I actually wasn't too familiar with. I'm sure that many of our uh, panel family across the country might not be familiar with as well. Um, this is what Dr. Joe Gamble said from the Retirement Commission. KiwiSaver is actually viewed by some people separately. It's viewed as separate property, but in actual fact, it's relationship property. Do you want to expand on that? Well, relationship property is termed to apply for anything that's acquired during the relationship. So just like your your bank account balance at separation is relationship property, your KiwiSaver balance is as well. And so, you know, you do get people who have got, say, 150000 in KiwiSaver and the other person's got none, um, which means that's a huge adjustment. But it's it just... What what you're doing on this on this program is is providing more education for people, which is what's needed about KiwiSaver. Well, thank you, Jeremy, and it's a pleasure to provide it because I tell you what, Simon Pound, um, I wasn't aware of that. That that actually you think of KiwiSaver psychologically, it's yours. It's separate property. No, it's not. I think it makes sense that it's part of um, the the relationship. Uh, property. What really interested me there was the idea that family trusts are somehow uh, a way to get out of that. Can you expand on how that sometimes might uh, work in a way that, that disadvantages a partner? Well, if you have a family trust, for example, that's set up um, Simon prior to the relationship, you may go into the relationship with, say, a house which is owned by a, a a prior family trust, which which doesn't become relationship property, so it, it's a way of um, really um, circ- circumventing the um, general rule of after three years, it's a fifty fifty division of the re- relationship property because trust law doesn't apply to relationship property legislation. Right, so it has to be before a relationship begins that it's in there, but then the you know capital gains or uplift that occurs during the time of the relationship is then not 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 available. Yeah, it's, it's more it, it's more complicated than than we've probably got time on this program. Yeah. But <laughs> we'll get an um, invoice. What it means, of of course, is for women particularly, they need to spend a lot of money, um, and it can take a lot of time to get their proper relationship property entitlement and it goes back to what Wallace was saying before um, that you know a huge number of them are very stressed now. It's really difficult now too isn't it because if you own a house and that's your main asset and you split that in two you can literally not buy two houses (laughs) in any major centre and and the problem you have too if you're a woman and you've given up your career to raise your children then you come out of the relationship with no earning ability in comparison to the person who has been working so even if you split it 50-50 one of you walks off with the income and the other person has to start from scratch and that's just I think that's inherently unfair and it's Mm. maybe people just put up with bad husbands because they can't afford to flick them 
Yeah, I think that's a very good point, uh, Linda. We are seeing that now where there's, you know, there's just the one one property and people will perhaps stay in that same house for for a while um, because yeah. you know, they don't want to rent. One party doesn't want to rent. Yeah, really interesting. Bring it. So just just finally, just do let me let me get this clear, Jeremy. You're, you're married. Your partner has say sixty thousand dollars in their KiwiSaver. You are entitled to a share of that. Yeah, you're entitled to half half that. So so if it's sixty, you're you're entitled to thirty thousand. And in fact, in our legislation, um, we have to ex- expressly disclose how much KiwiSaver we have during the relationship and. The, um, the the extract um, that you refer to was a shock to me because it said that three and four people didn't take their KiwiSaver into account when dividing their assets, which implies to me that they didn't see a lawyer because any good lawyer would you know point point that out that KiwiSaver is part of relationship property. Really great advice, Jeremy, and uh, nice to bring up this issue uh, on the panel. Um, not advice, rather, just information about that issue. Jeremy Kiora, thank you for your time. Uh, there's Jeremy Sutton there, who is a barrister and family lawyer. So there you go. Uh, so uh, you, your KiwiSaver, if you, you are entitled to a share, half share of their KiwiSaver, should you break up? Fair? We're both self-employed in my relationship, so... I don't really get a lot of KiwiSaver. I mean, I should point out too, before they start emailing you that I was being sexist before about the husbands, I mean, that has generally been the history. But it is really difficult, isn't it? I mean, I think there's probably a real avenue for architects, and I'm not even being facetious, but for people future-proofing their homes, just in case you do need to have two residences under wow. the same house, whether you like them or not. Well, speaking of architecture, we have been run at our feet with... Uh, <laughs> we'll have to come back to this heritage, and anti and pro-heritage. I totally agree with Linda. These old buildings are over-romanticised. I see water pouring down our roads from broken pipes. Spending money on fixing our broken pipes is com- completely necessary and a more valid way to spend rates. Linda is stuck in the 80s. In the long run, valuing heritage pays for itself when it comes to the success of the city. Uh, You just played Talking Heads. Hello, they did a brilliant show in the old town hall. (laughs) 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 So thank you for your feedback uh, this afternoon. The panel, RNZ National, Simon Pound and Linda Hallinan with me. Well... Completely different topic now. Uh, actually, no, I'm just going to read you a news flash. This has just come through. Police say literally hundreds of officers are scouring the state of Maine and the US to find the man accused of killing 22 people in the worst American mass shooting of 2023. At a press conference a few moments ago, police said they would not confirm numbers of dead. But multiple sources have told US media that up to 22 people have been killed in the spree across three sites in the town of Lewiston, Maine. The FBI has sent helicopters to the manhunt and police in surrounding states have closed state borders to confine the shooter. US authorities have identified the man as a former soldier, Robert Card. Police named Card 40 as a person of interest and say he should be considered armed and dangerous. You'll hear more about this issue uh, on Checkpoint. 
Well, sales of antibiotics for plants and animal use dropped by 23% in 2022. This from a new report by the Ministry of, for Primary Industries. This has been part of a push to tackle antimicrobial resistance, AMR, after the World Health Organization identified AMR as one of the top 10 global threats facing humanity. While it's good news for plants and animals, we're not seeing the same reductions in antibiotics being dished out to humans. New Zealand has one of the highest rates of antibiotic use in the OECD. We're in the top five behind Italy, Greece and Korea, according to 2019 data. With us is Associate Professor Mark Thomas, an infectious diseases expert from the Faculty of Medical and Health Sciences. Professor, Associate Professor Thomas, welcome. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, thanks for being on. Why are we seeing such a drop in antibiotic use on plants and animals? Uh, Well, um, the vets have been very proactive in terms of um, uh, making a resolution in 2015 that they intended for New Zealand to be a country where um, antibiotics were were not going to be used at all for maintenance of health in animals, only used for treating infections. a world first in that. They, the New Zealand vets have been very, um, yeah, as I say, proactive. Mm. New Zealand has started off with a low rate of antibiotic use in animals compared with most other countries around the world, but they've um, managed to drive it down even further. It's a remarkable achievement. Wow, yeah, so good news and worth um, talking about on the panel because I can recall many years ago when it was quite a lot higher, Simon. This is one of these things that, you know, we should actually, you know, we spend all this energy worrying about, um, you know, things that aren't actually that that likely to, to hurt us, like plane crashes or quicksand or something. But actually things like antimicrobial resistance are the things that we should be staying up and worrying about and really making efforts. So it's fantastic to see a start. What's the picture like internationally, though? Uh, well, I don't know about, I'm a, I'm a, um, human infectious disease specialist rather than an animal one. And um, I don't know whether other countries are also significantly reducing um, their use of antibiotics in animals and in farming, but I think many are. I think it's often actually driven by um, supermarkets rather than other regulatory bodies um, where supermarkets will advertise no antibiotics, you know, in this um, chicken or no antibiotics in this beef um, uh, during its lifetime. And so that's been a... um, something that the supermarkets will then put pressure on the, the farmers to um, reduce antibiotic use because it's one thing, something they want in the, in the food that they sell. Mark, as, I mean, obviously if you're a human expert, I mean, I'm the mum of two kids who seem to bring home, you know, mm. all manner of bugs from school. And, yeah, I mean, I, I don't remember having antibiotics when I was a child. I think we just used to get sick and be told to harden up. But are we getting sicker then as a species, or is it just that they're being prescribed more to parents who take their kids to doctors? Do you know what I mean? Like, how, how do we know whether it's just that it's over-prescribing or actually that we are weakening and needing uh, we're not weakening. We're not weakening at all. We're, we're much um, fitter and healthier than we were in the past, I think, other than the sort of obesity epidemic and a few other things. But no, our immune systems are not getting weaker. Um, uh, I think society has changed and um, people are um, more prepared to spend money on the doctor. There's more doctors out there or than there were when we were young, certainly yeah. when I was young. And, um, and people have become to expect that if they have a cold that lasts four or five days um, and then is still going a day or so later than they 
then they want to get something to knock it on the head and they'll go to a doctor about it. Um, uh, and, and unfortunately, a large portion of doctors will prescribe an antibiotic in that situation uh, for an I, infection that's caused by a virus that I can always make no difference to. Yeah, sorry to interrupt really, Mark, and I'll just, I'll just think I can always recall, I think it was Dr. Brian Betty as part of uh, Antibiotics Week. This is back in 2019. He was saying we forget. It's good to remind ourselves that, say, the early 40s, if you sort of cut your finger in the kitchen uh, and it got infected, you could really easily die. Um, antibiotics are that important. Let me ask you, do you think we are still overusing antibiotics for human patients? Uh, it's not something I think, um, well, it's something I know, yeah. um, that yes, we are compared with the other countries around the world um, that measure antibiotic use per head of population. Um, we are in the top five. Um, we're there with Greece, Spain, um, Belgium and North Korea. Um, and we're twice or three times the amount that's used in, say, Denmark or Sweden. Now, we wouldn't be expecting to use the same amount as Denmark and Sweden because we've got a different sort of population, younger and more people in poverty. But um, we do, across all stratas of our society, use too much antibiotics. So, Mark, what have, what have the um, vets done then that GPs and doctors can't take on board? If you can reduce the usage in animals by mm. 42%, why is there not sort of a similar campaign going on behind the scenes with doctors? Uh, well, um, dogs and cats and cows and um, pigs and you know chickens don't go to the vet and say, "Look, I want to have some antibiotics, please." So there's 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 only one side to the um, process going on with vets and farmers, and they decide what they think will maximise their you know profits and um, production from the farm, and so they use that. But um, doctors, unfortunately, are placed in the position of having to deal with other humans, and you know they and and they have a, um, a business relationship often with those humans, where they don't want to upset the people who come in and say, "I want something to fix my cold because I've got to go to Australia tomorrow. Um, can you give me some antibiotics, yeah. please? Because I know that'll fix it." Well, um, yeah. You know, it's a different it's a different transactional process. Mark, very nice to have you on the program. Really fascinating uh, cure uh, for that. That's. Uh, an infectious diseases expert, Associate Professor Mark Thomas. It is eight away from five. The panel are NZ National. Nice to have your company today. Simon Pound and Linda Hallinan has been uh, is on the show this afternoon. Now, this came to my attention in the New Zealand Herald this afternoon. Men celebrate their yellowing pillows. Women react. An article about the photos circulating online of mostly men showing off their, let's just be honest, really grubby pillows. The men were receiving some feedback that a sweaty-looking pillow shows a lack of hygiene and is a bit of a turn-off. So I wanted to know more, and I knew who to turn to. I knew that Dr. Stephen Archer, a microbiologist from AUT, would have all the answers. Stephen, kia ora. Nice to have you here. G'day, thanks for having me. Um, in a moment of real honesty, we have also had this conversation at my house. Um, darling, that pillow is very yellow. What do you intend to do with it? I said, nothing, it's comfy. Uh, what is making my pillows so yellow, Stephen? <laughs> 
Well, it's a combination of sweat and oils, uh, <laughs> which uh, is not terribly surprising. But men do produce more of uh, of these things uh, oh. than, than women on average. That's why it does tend to be a bit disproportionate on how grubby our pillows may look after a shorter period of time. Well, that's astonishing because I tried to we tried to break it down, Linda, uh, because we're talking about it. It was a real issue. Why is mine twice as yellow as Tab's, Linda? Oh, look, I discovered something horrifying this year. I'm going into menopause, and I managed to, like, end up with, like, a mouldy, like, a murder outline on the sheets from where I'd been sweating at night. I was like, what the hell? But you're right about the pillow. I think it's because men, the pillowcase falls off, and they don't care. They just carry on sleeping on it. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't help, certainly. I I mean, I've got... um, boy and girl children, and I definitely find my boys uh, have, need to be reminded of hygiene a little bit more often. <laughs> they let things fly a lot better. But yes, I mean, it's also stacked, uh, stacked against us a little bit, I'm afraid. Yeah, is it, though, you know, like the boy being a bit grubby, do b- boys just have a um, a higher grubbiness threshold or are less aware of these details? Oh, I think that's more of a societal question than it is a microbial yeah. question. <laughs> I, I think we might perhaps let boys, uh, there is that perception of, oh, you know, boys are that way, boys will be boys. Uh, so I think that that might have something to do with it. But certainly, as I say, we do uh, tend on average to sweat more. Uh, we have more uh, muscle mass on average, which produces more heat. That's why uh, nice. we, we're like little radiant heaters, um, you know, uh, compared to um, compared to women on average. Someone says, my simple fix is to buy a dark-coloured pillowcase. Booyah. Um, in terms of the hygiene, is it an issue that I have a pillow um, twice as yellow as my loved ones? I've got a huge reaction uh, on social media to this. People are saying, well, look, uh, men for some reason just love their yellow pillow because they find it comfy. Is there anything around hygiene in this, Dr. Racher? Oh, certainly. Uh, I'm, I'm, so, I'm sorry to say, but I mean, uh, we, we uh, from my last uh, segments talking about this, we do have a wonderful uh, microscopic zoo sleeping under our heads, and they feed on that sweat and that uh, the, that oil and the skin particles what? that you're shedding off. Oh, yes. So, so having a particularly grubby-looking pillow uh, is more likely to give more uh, more food for those microorganisms Stephen? to, to if I could just show you a photo of the production booth right now, there are four people with their mouths open um, thinking of all those microbial little wee animals under our pillow as we sleep. Can I just say, though, I wonder whether it's because we don't have natural pillows anymore either. Because like, you know how sometimes you buy a T-shirt that's made out of, I don't know, some sort of plasticky fabric and it stinks real bad if you go for a run in it. Um, maybe the pillows are like that too. Like Maybe pillows just right. aren't what they used to be. Well, I, I can say from from my experience, my wife and I find exactly the same thing, and we use uh, um, pillows with uh, <laughs> a, a cotton pillowcase on it, and it just does naturally ha- happen. But as far as is it concerning for health, well, unless you're getting skin irritation or sickness, well, the proof is a little bit in the pudding there, isn't it? It's not necessarily going to harm you. It just is something that you might have to uh, settle with the reality of. Stephen, this sounds like a half. Our Q and A, but for <laughs> <Absolutely>. now, <laughs> for now, uh, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you for your time. Thanks very much for having me. Have a good one. That's Stephen Archer, microbiologist. Uh, the things I learned about a yellowing pillow this afternoon.
I just have to add that my dad had the same K-pop pillow for nearly 70 years. You see? Isn't that disgusting? And it's nice to think that over the evening you're still providing, you know. You're giving those bacteria a lovely lovely good feed. And also, let me tell you, ladies, I'm afraid you can't leave them because of their stinky pillows because then you lose half the house and you can't retire. That's it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, um, pillow protectors, someone said, pillow protectors, please, and wash them with the pillowcases. Menopause, towel over pillow, towel under sheet. Thank you for the tip. Is that us? Is that us for this afternoon? <laughs> That's the final thing. Anything to add? Simon? These are the real Come issues, in? aren't they? Not heritage buildings. <laughs> no. It's the which, nation's bed sheets which and is, pillows. Which is what we'll come back to. I'm going to leave you with one more. One more. No, I won't. I've got so much more feedback to give you 3.45 in our Friday mailbag about your school trips. Thank you for listening this afternoon. I always appreciate it. And to you, Linda, thanks for being here. Simon, same to you, Simon. I'm Wallace Chapman. Lisa Owen and Checkpoint next. Thanks to Sally for producing. Back tomorrow, 3.45.